0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 11th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. When should the state have the power to abridge your right of self-medication? And what are the implications of locking patients into a permission-based system of medicine? Jessica Flanagan is author of Pharmaceutical Freedom, Why Patients Have a Right to Self-Medicate. We spoke this month in Dallas. It's easy to get bogged down in uh, details of regulation and uh, what how our Constitution has been interpreted to mean that we have this right, but we don't have this other right and the government may regulate this part of our lives with you know in this narrow way or this broad way. Uh, but you make a essentially moral defense of the right to self-medicate. And if I recall from your the talk you gave here in Dallas, this is a very long history in the United States, before it was the United States. So detail that for me and what we know about what people used to think about the right to put whatever you want into your body.
1: Right. So rights of self-medication used to be seen as continuous with bodily rights, um, a right to decide what happens with your body, which I think is the right judgment of what they are. And in, for example, notes in the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson was making the case for freedom of conscience. And... At the time, he's trying to convince people, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, you know how important that is. It's as important as your right of self-medication, your right to make decisions about your body. And that was seen as a premise in justifying the rights of freedom of speech and conscience, which we currently all recognize. Over the course of the 19th century, rights of self-medication were widely endorsed. There were all these different kinds of practicers of um, different sorts of medicine. There was a lot of variety and innovation, not as much standardization. And even when FDA first started regulating the sales of pharmaceuticals in a prohibitive way, not just regulating fraud in the 1930s, the original legislation was passed explicitly saying that it was not intended to infringe in any way upon effective self-medication. And when was this? 1938.
0: 1938. So even as late as that, they're cognizant that this is a right people want to remain enshrined in how we function as a society.
1: Right. As it happens, as it was enforced, it effectively, after 1938, and especially after the durham humphrey Amendment in the, 60s, uh, in the 1950s, the rights of self-medication began to fall away. But at the same time that people stopped recognizing rights of self-medication, over the course of the 20th century, a new medical right came on the scene that people hadn't recognized in the past, which was the doctrine of informed consent. So at the same time that people were gaining rights to make choices about their health and their bodies in the clinic... They were losing that right in the marketplace. So I'm arguing that we should reclaim that right in the marketplace as well.
0: And Even if you are a consequentialist, there are important reasons why you would want to recognize and have people recognize within themselves the final decision-making authority about how and what they medicate themselves with.
1: So rights of self-medication are really aimed at three different kinds of policies. One kind of policy is the pre-market approval process. So the FDA prohibits people from accessing drugs unless they've been approved. Another kind of policy is prescription requirements. And the third is prohibition. So there are just some drugs you can't get in the United States or in other developed countries that have these types of policies following the United States. If you're a consequentialist, you might think, these are good policies because they're going to protect people from making bad health decisions. But that's false in two senses. So even if you only care about health decisions, only if, if you only care about medicine, policies like pre-market approval policies, for example, have bad health, exam, uh, have bad health effects. Um, so for example, one bad health effect of pre-market approval requirements is drug lag. So people suffer and die waiting for a drug to get approved. That's a bad health effect that we don't see. Because if a person suffers and dies waiting for a drug to get approved, it looks like they suffered and died of their diseases. Not from the prohibitive policies enforced by the FDA,
0: is that um, this drug lag? Is that something that the FDA is cognizant of or builds into any of their the reports that they write? like mm-hmm. do they recognize that as a cost of this massive regulatory apparatus.
1: They definitely do. So in the 1970s, um, cancer researchers pushed for faster approval for cancer class drugs. In the 1980s, you might have seen Dallas Buyers Club AIDS patients petitioned the FDA and advocated for faster access to AIDS therapeutics. And then in 1993, uh, Congress passed the Orphan Drug Act, which decreased the regulatory burden of navigating the approval process for drugs that could treat rare diseases. And uh, FDA, in response to all of these kind of political pressures, has been very cognizant of the need to speed the approval process and try to make it less burdensome on manufacturers. Nevertheless, it still takes years and hundreds of millions of dollars for a drug to bring a drug to market. It's still a really lengthy, difficult, multi stage process. And the justification for it is poor, I think, because it's in tension with the widespread practice in medicine of off-label prescribing. So they say, like, we understand that we need to have a faster, more efficient system, and we're going to try in these ways, compassionate access programs, orphan drug classifications, things like that. But we definitely need to still have safety and efficacy testing requirements. And then you think, well, what are the efficacy testing requirements doing? It's showing that a drug is proven to be effective enough, sufficiently effective, for a certain patient type with a certain condition. Once a drug is approved as safe and effective by FDA, though, anybody can access it from their doctor off-label, which means that efficacy testing requirements are not necessary for accessing a drug for all of the off-label users. And up to 40% of prescriptions, on some estimates, are off-label outside the patient type or condition that it was originally tested for efficacy for. So we have a lot of people that are using drugs that haven't been tested for efficacy. And we don't think that this is like a total disaster. And we know that people are suffering and dying while they wait for these efficacy testing requirements to be completed.
0: There's some data that you uh, point to that uh, indicates that, one, people tend to be more circumspect when it comes to evaluating their own health and their own health needs and their needs for medicine when they are the ultimate decision maker. Right. Um, Just detail that, uh, what we know about how people think about their own health when they are the decision maker and when they're not.
1: Yeah, so so far I've talked about the poor health effects of pre-market testing requirements, but take prescription requirements. Does that have poor health effects? You might think having a doctor write a permission slip for people will mean that they don't make unhealthy decisions. But there's some evidence from Sam Peltzman who compared middle-income European countries that enforced prescription requirements to those that didn't. And the places that enforced the prescription requirements had higher rates of accidental poisonings. And this is intuitive if you think about it, because you probably would be more likely to use a drug that you didn't know as much about if your doctor told you that it was okay. And you'd be a little bit more risk-averse if you didn't. So if you were just making the decision on your own. And there's some additional evidence that shows that people are a little bit more conservative when it comes to pharmaceutical use. uh, if. They are making those decisions and bearing the price of those decisions on their own, coming from contraceptives as a drug class. But patients just lack the medical literacy to make these decisions. But one reason that they might lack that medical literacy is because the current system gives people very few incentives to educate themselves about the risks and the health effects of the drugs. And so why would I spend time learning about something which I will have no effective control over ultimately because my doctor is empowered to be the gatekeeper? But if I did have the authority to decide whether or not to use a drug— then I would learn more about it and I would weigh the risks and benefits and decide whether it was a good health choice. But even setting aside all of the health choices, the second consequentialist reasons that all of these prohibitive policies are so harmful is health is only one of many value. Like some people don't care about health. Some people care more about you know, not having medical treatment that conflicts with their religion or they care more about having quality of life instead of quantity of life. And they make those trade-offs on their own. And if we really care just about the consequences of you know, the choices people are making about their drugs and their bodies. We shouldn't just look at the health consequences. We should look at overall consequences. And who's the expert about whether or not drug use will have good overall consequences for you? Is it the FDA commissioner? Is it Scott Gottlieb? Or is it you? Well, it's you. And so a regulator, a doctor, they can never know how you know, risk and benefits fit into the overall constellation of your values. There's no scientific judgment about whether or not something's successfully risky or worth it to try.
0: And there are competing risks and competing benefits with different avenues that you might take right. with uh, with treatments for whatever or, or supplements or anything you might do to try to improve your health. And uh, when some of those avenues are just cut off, you're left with a much more difficult choice, frankly, and, and, yeah. one, and one at which you may not be uh, encouraged to learn about.
1: That's right. I mean, right now... People are presented with options from their physicians and from the FDA, and so the universe of their choices is already very constrained. But where they retain their rights is always with refusal. You can always refuse therapy. Um, And we would always reject, at this point, we we would all reject the view that you could override a patient's right to refuse. So if a patient says, I'm done with treatment, I want to end chemotherapy, you can't force them to take chemotherapy. Um, So we know that people have the authority to make even deadly choices about their bodies when the point comes to refusal. And I'm saying those very same rights that justify the right to refuse also justify rights of access. Now, some people might think like, well, rights of access are a little bit different from rights to refuse because um, forcing a drug on somebody is more of a violation than withholding access to a drug. But I don't think that that's true You know, so people who are kind of broadly pro-choice might find this analogy compelling. Imagine a person has a right to end their pregnancy. It would still be a violation of that right if public officials said, oh, yeah, yeah, you have a right to make reproductive decisions, but no one who's a health worker can in any way facilitate or help you exercise the means to make those reproductive decisions. By analogy... It would be wrong for the government to say, oh, yeah, you have a right to make medical choices. We're just saying that no one who's a health worker or a manufacturer or a you know provider of pharmaceuticals can in any way facilitate you making those health choices.
0: Right. And there are a lot of other examples outside of the health sphere where, yeah, you have a right to certain things, but anyone who provides it to you is committing a crime.
1: Right. And we would think that that's not really effectively respecting your right.
0: Yeah. So um, – how do we get from here to there in terms of, you know, you, you've cast this as a, as a sort of a long struggle to reclaim this right on par with, in, in terms of difficulty, in terms of public consciousness, of, uh, with ending slavery, of, of recognizing uh, certain rights in other people?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think we should be optimistic because we know that moral progress of reclaiming people's autonomy In the face of paternalistic policy, it happened in the past. And so um, expanding property rights to women, ending slavery, uh, embracing the doctrine of informed consent in clinical contexts. So in 1968, 90% of oncologists admitted that they would routinely lie to their patients about their diagnosis. Now we would think that was unconscionable. That was so recent. So look at how far we've come morally just in, you know, two or three generations. So I have hope and I'm optimistic that moral progress is happening Now And then it's possible to continue down the path of self-medication. So things that make me feel encouraged about self-medication is right-to-try legislation, which makes it easier for patients to have a path to access investigational therapies. Some court decisions that have upheld rights of off-label marketing and some work that's being done in Arizona to allow for off-label marketing of drugs. Off-label marketing is an interesting case because laws that prohibit manufacturers of drugs to market off-label really are content-based restrictions of speech that advocates in favor of lawful conduct. And so, on my view, they're unconstitutional, and there's no real authority for them.
0: I was going to ask, uh, related to that, because I'm, I'm reminded, uh, based on your talk and, and conversation we had before we started recording, of this scene in one of the very first episodes of Mad Men, where Peggy, uh, who, if you watch Mad Men, you know who Peggy is, she goes to the doctor to try to get birth control. And this physician, who I, I don't recall exactly, but was probably smoking a cigarette while he's talking to her, is saying, is, you know, wagging his finger in her face, saying, if you abuse this drug, I will take you off of it. And so it's weird to think about how, as we've lost this right to self-medicate, how that really has empowered physicians over patients. And, and that has to change a whole lot about the dynamics of the relationship between a doctor and a patient, you point out that doctors have in the past routinely lied to patients, uh, or uh, you know, not made them aware of certain treatments that they could could have benefited from. But more broadly, do you see the specific any specific ways how that relationship has changed?
1: Definitely, with the internet, right? So now, patients, for example, rare disease communities or people who are suffering with similar types of chronic illness, they organize in these online communities and. It's very empowering for them to be able to learn more about their conditions. And in some cases, with rare diseases, which doctors haven't necessarily encountered as much, they can become citizen scientists and experts about their own care and their own medical condition, more so than their physicians are. Um, And medical researchers have even started looking into these communities to kind of find new avenues for potential treatment. They're also... Um, learning from the testimony of patients. So one thing I talk about in the Pharmaceutical Freedom book is um, patients who had done like basic research on rare diseases, and that basic research went on to uh, become the basis of NIH uh, trials and investigations of those therapies. So cyclodextrin for Neiman-Pix type C is one example. So I think that because patients are able to connect more and because information is more available to patients, that's really like pushed towards a kind of patient empowerment. And I think that it's not necessarily clear to me that doctors should have reason to be worried about this because I think a lot of people get into medicine because they want to form relationships with patients and advise them. And if people had rights of self-medication, I think many people – would still seek out medical advice in the same way that they seek out financial advice when they're making decisions about their money, even though they can make ruinous choices if they want to. Right, right? you can
0: make all sorts of terrible choices that will dramatically harm your future prospects financially. Yeah, and they say you need to you need the advice of a competent professional here. Um, and but you know the way doctors have you know they have control over whether some people live in pain or don't live in pain. Yeah, and that's a pretty sad thing.
1: And they aren't those people, so like they don't know what it's like to be those people. So I feel like if physicians are sincere in their assertion, which many physicians do assert, that they would like to treat the patient not the disease, then they should defer to the patients and they should be comfortable with policies that enable them to defer to patients about this. And I don't think doctors want to be writing scripts all the time trying to talk to people for five minutes just so they can serve as a gatekeeper. I think that people get into medicine because they want to really get to know their patients and benefit them in this kind of advisory way and so that's the ideal for the doctor-patient relationship that I favor is one with more collaboration and less of permission.
0: Jessica Flanagan is author of Pharmaceutical Freedom, Why Patients Have a Right to Self-Medicate. We spoke this month in Dallas. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.